When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast, and now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right, you're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas, that's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for nearly the last 11 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, UFC fight night, Saturday, had the octagon down there, San Antonio way, at the AT&T Center, and I guess you could say a couple of people scored wins for the status quo in a couple of different divisions with Corey Sandhagen turning away, at least for now, Marlon Chito Vera's title hopes and Holly Holm re-re-re-re-establishing herself as the long-time, long-time, perhaps, top contender in the women's bantamweight division. So we're going to talk about those two fights, those two wins. There's some other stuff going on in the world of MMA, despite the fact that we have a couple weeks here before UFC 287. The PFL returns this week with a pretty tantalizing card by PFL standards, I would say. And also you got sort of a under-the-radar, low-profile Bellator event coming up on Friday. So we will talk about all of that. But I would be remiss, sir, if we didn't start here. And you know what the biggest headline from the weekend is for Chad Dundas, and that is Nate Landwehr going out there and getting the second round submission victory over Austin Lingo, scoring one for the Weirdsmobiles everywhere. I just hope, I sincerely hope that everyone out there in co-main event podcast listener land someday meets someone who loves them as unconditionally as I love Nate Landwehr. He's, you he's one me- of my faves. You sent me an almost outraged text over the weekend when you, the moment you realized that Nate Landwehr was on this card, you didn't realize that before. And you were, it was like an all caps text where you were like, Nate Landwehr is fighting this weekend. Why didn't anybody tell me? And I was just like, man, I've, I had assumed by now you had a Google alert set up. You had some kind of system to make sure a Nate Landwehr fight didn't fall through the cracks on you just because I know how much you appreciate the guy. Love everything about Nate Landwehr. Don't want to know anything about his personal beliefs. Refuse to follow him on any social medias. Will not interact with anything he thinks, says, or does outside the octagon. I just want to preserve this like a like a a, a hornet frozen in amber. I want to preserve my feelings for Nate Landwehr. Just an absolute unbelievable Weirdsmobile. Gets what he himself described as the, quote, sucker punch, rear naked choke (laughs) on Austin Lingo. Picks up a performance of the night award to boot. Nothing not to like about Nate Landwehr. Chad, if he doesn't lose, 
chances are he's going to win. Yeah, no, that's right. Well, you know what? That's going to come up more than once on today's show. We're going to talk about fighters that would have won if they hadn't lost. I'll tell you one of my favorite things about Nate Landwehr, though. His nickname is The Train, which it almost rhymes with his first name. Yeah, it does. See, it's like it throws me off every single time because I guess through like maybe through like Nate Marquardt's influence and whatever and a few other people we've seen do this similar thing. I think every time they say Nate the and I'm expecting the great. I'm yeah. expecting something that rhymes like directly and it's like Nate the train. Like you start out and the it sounds like it's going to be another rhyming nickname and then it's not and I feel like that that weird discordant feeling is maybe the perfect thing for Nate Land where yeah. also if you think I didn't watch this fight and then immediately go change my bios on all my my social medias uh to read got a highlight reel like evil knievel swagger like elvis <laughs> presley and damn if i ain't handsome i mean think again uh, i mean he could have gone with irate nate landwehr he could have gone I mean, with nate this, this the hand of fate landwehr but no nate the train it's just it's like you go to the dollar store looking for a nate marquardt action figure and what they have is you find one called Nate the Train that kind of mm-hmm. looks like Nate. You're like, this Marquardt. is close enough. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, if, hey, if you're out there and you're like, man, I want to set up this Tinder account, but I don't know what to write in the about me section. You could do a lot worse than Nate Landwehr's promo about evil Knievel highlights, Elvis Presley's swagger, and damn if I ain't handsome. Yeah. No, you could do a lot worse. Mm-hmm. You're at, least, at least it gets people's attention. Let's say that. <laughs> Not one tweet. Won't read one single tweet. If I'm like, hey, I, hey, Chad, I found a bunch of posts that Nate Landwehr made on a Reddit, like a subreddit thing about the government. <laughs> if it's just that blanket statement, if I'm just like, Chad, here are some thoughts Nate Landwehr has about the government. And I send you that link. You tell me you're just hitting delete on that email right away. I'm not just even. So you don't even it. give yourself a chance to read it. Nate Landwehr could be the biggest Tennessee Titans fan in the world, and I don't, I don't even want to know. I've just <laughs> steer clear of that one, as far as I'm concerned. Remember, you're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast proper. This show drops for free every Monday afternoon in your timelines and podcast libraries. Friends, I need you to do two things for me right now. First, before you forget, subscribe to the show, no matter if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other platform. Just go in there right now right now while I'm telling you and click the subscribe button. That way the podcast shows up in your feed every week and you don't forget to listen. Second, if you already subscribe, you should go ahead and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to. That stuff really hates, really helps us defeat the hated insidious algorithm that only wants people to listen to the fettered discourse of the corporate fat cats. So in a way it does hate, it hates that it hates the corporate fat cats, Ben folks. Yeah. Let's all hate on the corporate fat cats. And if you really want to support the show, find us over on Patreon. Ben Folks and I are over there pretty much all week churning out additional content. We run the Wednesday live chat where we take your questions for a full 60 minutes. You can get in for the, to the live chat for $1 a month, which is this, the best deal in all of mixed martial arts. We got the Thursday Doing the Damn Thing podcast where we take a break from fighting, talk about pop culture. We got the Friday Power Hour, which is a full extra curated hour of mixed martial arts talk to get you hyped for the weekend we've got a patronage tier for every budget head over to patreon.com slash co-main event and sign up to join the team 
You can also scoop up some dope CME merchandise. Just head over to our brand new merch shop where you'll find old favorites like the original Dundasso t-shirt, old school cowboy astronaut cigarettes merch, and you can find a lot of cool new stuff as well. Just go to our website, comainevent.com, and click the link at the top of the page that says shop. Remember, we partner with our friends at Superconductor on the shop. Uh, Superconductor is a brand and design studio. We can't recommend them highly enough for all your design needs. Hit them up at studiosuperconductor.com or on Instagram at Studio Superconductor. We got music again this week from our guy Dennis Pham, a self-described day one co-maniac from San Diego. He writes a song every few years. You can find his single, The Fire, on Spotify and Apple Music and all other major music streaming platforms, if you like what you hear. Three rounds, as usual, this week on the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, Chito Vera was a slow starter, and Corey Sandhagen, well... He was not. He pretty much got after it. And in round number two, Holly Holm was great on Saturday. But is it too much to ask that a long-standing UFC regular might win a fight and not use some coded language that tells us they've been watching too much Fox News? And in round number three, PFL returns with a legitimately interesting card this week. Bellator? Not so much, though there might be some cool stuff on the horizon. All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Ben, I went out and got a new phone over the weekend. Went over to the Verizon store and got myself the iPhone 14 Pro. I assume that's an upgrade for you from the iPhone one and a half. I mean, my phone was pretty old. It might have been. It was an early ass iPhone. So now I got the new one. You know what the first thing I did with it was? What? Put NordVPN on there. Of course you did. We've been preaching the virtues of NordVPN for a long time now. Ben has it. I have it. I just put it on my new phone. With NordVPN, you get the fastest VPN on the planet. NordVPN provides online protection with a single click. Don't miss your favorite content. Even when you're traveling, stay at home virtually. Stay safe from malware with threat protection, Ben. I know you love NordVPN because you're a man about town. You're out there drifting from one local watering hole to another, and you don't have to worry about your phone bouncing from public Wi-Fi to public Wi-Fi. That is, in fact, my favorite thing about NordVPN. And I know... A fellow like you will especially appreciate it because, Chad, it kicks on whenever you're on the public Wi-Fi to keep you protected. Doesn't matter where you are. Doesn't matter, Chad, if you're at the Verizon store trading in your Zach Morris-ass phone to get yourself an upgrade. (laughs) Doesn't matter if you then turn right around and go down to the local utility office to pay your bill in person with a checkbook. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter then if you go uh, next to the library to return some books that you have checked out and physical copies and then hang around talking to various youths about the way prices have changed of items since you were young. NordVPN has you protected no matter what. Some of those were jokes about how I'm old. What? You? Young fella like you? Yeah, I felt like there was some some sarcastic, sardonic jokes in there about how i'm old just standing around outside the library going just guess what a loaf of bread used to cost go ahead guess you'll never guess you know what though i did return a physical library book <laughs> of course over you the did. weekend yeah so you got me there by the way do you want to get four free months instead of the usual three with nordvpn 
Well, right now, if you sign up and use the link exclusively for listeners of the CME, you can. Every purchase of a two-year plan will receive four-plus bonus months on top of everything else when you use nordvpn.com slash co-main or use the code co-main when you sign up. This includes all the plans we tell you about all the time, the standard plan, the plus plan, and the whole enchilada, the complete plan. It's risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Get your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn slash co-main or use the code, all one word, co-main. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Jorgen, or Jorgen? Hard to say. I'm going to I'm gonna go with Jorgen. I'm going to yeah, guess it's Jorgen. Yeah, that feels right. The UFC bantamweight division has long been my favorite division. Fast, exciting fighters up and down the division, but recently it has become very annoying for me. Right now there is a log jam at the top of the division where it could be argued that each of the top five guys deserve a title shot. But all of this is jammed up by a Sterling versus Cejudo instant return to the UFC title shot, which I think all come back to the UFC title shots are ridiculous as well as the much-talked-about Marab refusing to fight his friend Sterling. My question is, does it hurt Sterling's title legacy if he never fights Marab, given that he wins against Cejudo? Why don't all UFC champs befriend their biggest title challenger? It is certainly (laughs) working for Sterling. Am I a stick in the mud for being angry that Marab is a gatekeeper that this insanely, in this insanely strong division for his friend? Now, this is, you know, this is not a bad strategy. Let's say you've got, I mean... Rashad Evans tried it with John Jones though. And you know, you know, I guess it was flip-flopped by the time they actually did fight but uh didn't work out for him. Here's my prediction too is if Aljamain Sterling beats Henry Cejudo and remains champion, it's only a matter of time before he and Marab do end up fighting each other. Yeah. You know, so they true. always work on these dudes. They always chip away at any friendship. We can't let even the closest and most sincere of human relationships stand in the way of booking a damn fight in this sport. <laughs> we never yeah. do. And so it'll just become a bigger and bigger will they or won't they kind of deal until they finally give in. So if they're still both the two guys, um, then... I think that that's what we'll end up doing. Uh, the The question about like Henry Cejudo coming right back into the title fight. Normally, Jorgen, I would agree with you that yeah. that is kind of bullshit. But in in Triple C's case, yeah, he does have a legitimate potential argument to the title of one of the greatest combat sports athletes of all time, an Olympic gold medalist who came in, won UFC titles in two different divisions. So. You could, like, if, if there's ever a case where anybody could be said, like, okay, he deserves to walk back in kind of at any point and cash in his money in the bank briefcase in exchange for a UFC title shot, it's probably Henry Cejudo just because yeah. of the legacy he built in his time in the sport and then walking away as champion. I don't have a problem with it in this sense. And I, I totally agree with you that, like, the bantamweight division has become more and more interesting, clearly very talent rich. You got a whole lot of guys right there. But I also feel like I can't get mad at us doing a Henry Cejudo title shot right away. Yeah, I don't hate it either. And I think it's going to be a tough one to pick when it comes down to it. Obviously, a a big thing to ask Henry Cejudo to come back and in his first fight, all, fight Aljamain Sterling. But, you know, Cejudo's been pretty great throughout some of his time, most recent time in the UFC. Uh, and, you know, I look forward to it not just because Henry Cejudo's going to show up with a big custom-made pillow of Aljamain Sterling's face 
and hand that to him at the weigh-ins, you know? So that, that'll be fun too. I also, I agree with you about Marab, man. I think ultimately they will end up fighting. And I think if it goes on, you know, long, longer than it should, if they are both either champion or top contenders in this division, you know who that ultimately is good for if they do fight? Probably those two guys, because, you know, that only raises interest and awareness and, uh, and probably ultimately is maybe good for the bottom line when they do end up fighting. But also, can't you understand if they don't want to fight? Yeah. Like if they legitimately are tight bros from back in the day, I can understand how they wouldn't want to fight. You don't want to fight your friend. You don't want to fight your training partner, the guy that you already are in there sweating and bleeding, trying to make each other better in the room out there at uh, Matt Sarah and Ray Longo's place. I, I would get it. I understand if they don't want to do it. I think I kind of, uh, I empathize with them and respect them a little bit for not wanting to do it, actually. Yeah, I, I totally get why why you would feel like, how are we supposed to keep helping each other prepare for upcoming fights if we also have it in the back of our heads that we might have to fight each other for real soon? I also think, just haven't been around this sport long enough, knowing how it typically goes, if you are still one and two, basically, the pressure is going to mount. And either either you can figure out how to do it amongst yourselves, or you can wait until the friendship snaps under this strain. Yeah, yeah. Next question this week comes to us from our guy, Josh Montgomery, over on Patreon. He writes, Big Dan, are you fucking kidding me? Fellas, I got home from the local bar and grill for my dad's buddy's 60th birthday, had a few Sam Adams while I was there, came home, poured a bourbon, and turned on the fights. So now the scene is set. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Barber versus Lee is firing up as I tune in. I'm sipping bourbon, playing fetch with my dog, and watching. All this preamble is to say I'm not qualified to officially judge this bout, but I tell you what, I've watched a lot of fucking fights, and I've been in my share on the mats too, and I know this was a fairly close fight, but I thought Lee was getting the better of it. And when I hear noted that referee Big Dan Mergliata gets called as the swing vote, and here 30-27, I'm thinking, okay, Lee's got it. And then he goes that way for Barber? Are you fucking kidding me? Big Dan gonna do us like that now? Is there no hope for even borderline sensible judging in this crazy world discourse please uh so you know i should have said from the top on this episode of the co-main event podcast we will talk about some texas shit we will Mm -hmm. talk about some specifically texas shit as it concerns as it concerns this fight card and this is just one of them this is just one of them where macy barber gets the win over uh excuse me andrea lee over the weekend split decision now this is one of the fun ones where one guy, one judge has it 28 or 29-28 for Andrea Lee. One judge has it 29-28 for Macy Barber. The UFC broadcast team is telling you Andrea Lee probably won. We're all sitting at home thinking close fight, but Andrea Lee probably won. And then the last judge, who in this instance happens to be Big Dan Mergliata, has it 30-27 for Barber, which happens more often than you would think in this sport when it comes to split decisions. Uh, you know, we had some judging irregularities in the Corey Sandhagen Cheeto Vera fight, which we will talk about coming up in round number one. That one in the main event more egregious, in my opinion, than this one in the Macy Barber Andrea Lee fight because it was close. This one unfortunately ends up swinging the actual decision for Macy Barber. But I think the bigger picture is this, Ben: How are you gonna have a UFC event 
allegedly the top MMA organization in the world. How are you going to have a UFC event in Texas and you are so desperate for judges that you're scrounging around being like, hey, Big Dan Mergliata is going to be there. He's reffing some fights that night. We'll just have him sit cage side and score a fight. The other guy they had, uh, Yo- Yoel, I can't remember his last name, but the guy who had the uh, the uh, off-the-wall scorecard in Marlon Vera o- versus Ojeda. Ojeda. Yeah, Yoel Ojeda. Uh, that guy's only judged like two fights. And you got him out here, main event, judging this UFC fight night card. Like, how does that even happen? Texas, where's your judges at? You're calling in Big Dan? Like, that to me is a much bigger issue than Mergliata just just handing in, a, you know, a, a dissenting opinion on the scores of this fight. Yeah, and hey, if if referees decide that they also want to be judges and, you know, do a little bit of double dipping as long as they go through the regular certification process. You could argue, hey, they've seen a ton of fights. They know yeah. this sport. They they are could be as qualified as anybody else. So I don't necessarily have a problem with that. It is weird, though. This one, I don't know if I've seen this in recent memory, at least. You had, I believe, seven decisions on this card, and four of them were split decisions. Yeah. And the thing that you normally, especially that other athletic commission officials have told me in the past, is the thing that you look at is who's the outlier in the split decision, which doesn't necessarily mean that they're wrong, but it does mean like if you end up being the outlier a lot of times, they kind of take a closer look at you, or at least they should if they care at all about examining their own process. And on this one, you notice that Chris Lee was the outlier on two of them two of the four split decisions, he ends up as the guy who had it for the other fighter. Now, that means in this instance that uh, if you were sitting there with your bourbon uh, watching this one like Josh Montgomery is, then you you feel like he was the only sensible man involved in that judge's decision. You feel like he's the one who had it right. And I think that it really does highlight something for us when if it's 29-28 one way, 29-28 the other way, that tells our brains, okay, this was a close-ass fight that could maybe go either way. And then when somebody else is like, nope, clean sweep for this one fighter, we go, what? How the hell is that possible? How could it be you all three were looking at the same exact thing? And I think, to me, what I, I guess what I really want to know that the athletic commissions are doing is, are you at least paying attention to this stuff? And that when something like this happens, are you at least going to your judges and being like, hey, I'm not saying necessarily you're wrong, but walk me through your decision-making in that process. Tell me what, just just have a conversation with them and have them tell you what they thought they saw, what they were yeah. thinking, what their reasoning behind their scorecard was. And it doesn't help that a lot of these athletic commissions don't seem to want us to know anything about what they're doing or how they're doing it. And that, the lack of transparency, it has it has gotten worse over the years and it doesn't give us any faith at all that they even give a shit, that they are, they care enough to, to try to examine their own processes and see if there's any improvements that they could make. It also just makes it so that we don't trust them. And it's kind of crazy. Like, if you want to make an argument for why especially state government bureaucracies suck, you could really use state athletic commissions as a great example. Because there's so much variance between one state's athletic commission to another. And then the way they do things where, uh, like, as any reporter has, who has ever tried to get answers out of a state athletic commission will tell you, they act like you were just not entitled to any sort of information about what they, in a public office, 
that has a great deal of power over this sport are doing. They act like they don't know you shit. Nobody should act, should get to know anything about the state athletic commissions. And that should not be how it works, man. That does not inspire a lot of confidence. All right. There is a couple more that I want to squeeze in here before we move on to the rounds. This one from Big Hoss, which I hope is a shout out to my novella in the territories, The Big Hoss, which you can buy over on Amazon right now. Go and search for The Territories and buy that book. We got volume two coming out soon. Big Hoss writes, is Cowboy the Fred McGriff of the UFC Hall of Fame? So crime dog reference here on this week's co-main event podcast. And I assume what he means is a guy who gets into the hall based on longevity and body of work more than greatness, let's say. Ben, do you have a problem with Donald the Cowboy Cerrone going into the UFC Hall of Fame? No, at least based on how we seem to be doing the USC Hall of Fame. As we've talked about before, there's really just one essential question you need to ask yourself to know what to think of this. And it is, what kind of Hall of Fame do you want to have? Do you want to have a Hall of Fame where it's just the elites, the best of the best, the absolute greats? Or do you want to have a Hall of Fame where there's room for different types of careers and different types of fighters? Some where it's champions who were just peerless and giants in the sport, but also some fighters where they were kind of just awesome dudes who did it for a while, and we all remember them fondly, even if they never held a belt or or really won the big one. And at this point, at least from the UFC's perspective, the matter seems to be decided. They won an awesome dudes Hall of Fame. And I think that they're kind of smart in some ways in which they've broken it up into different wings, where there's like the pioneer wing, you know, the, the wing for great fights so that way you can honor something like Forrest Griffin, Stefan Bonner uh, without getting into a question about whether the entirety of somebody's career makes them Hall of Fame worthy. But clearly USC, not only do they want to have an awesome dude Hall of Fame, they want to have people to induct every summer. And it's that's hard to do in MMA just because, for one thing, it's hard to even know when somebody's retired, when they are Hall of Fame eligible. It's a really hazy distinction in MMA. But also, they, they want to have it as like a marketing and branding opportunity around International Fight Week. And they have like they, they need the bodies. They got a late yeah. start on Hall of Fame stuff. They need to induct some people and keep it moving and, and, and get the bodies in there. And so clearly that's what they're doing. It's also the UFC's own Hall of Fame. It's not like there's a, a public voting process or, or like where you have a, a known panel that decides these things. They just sort of announce who has made it. There's no criteria, really. So they can do whatever they want. And when you understand all that, I don't I don't have a problem with it because clearly that's that is the kind of Hall of Fame that we're trying to have here. Yeah. And I mean you start from the position of that this is a Hall of Fame owned and operated by the UFC. There aren't really any Hall of Fame voters. It's just basically who the UFC wants to put in there every year. I don't know at this point if there is or has ever been a physical UFC Hall of Fame or if they just put the pictures up in a stairway over by the tough headquarters or what. But knowing that, I don't know that you can quibble too much with who goes in and who does not go into the UFC Hall of Fame. And above and beyond all that, I think in a sport as wacky and weird as MMA, you should have room to put some people in halls of fame for different reasons, right? And Donald Cerrone, one of the longest standing UFC fighters in terms of just sheer longevity and excitement and the fact that people love to watch him. And like I said, when he was actually fighting, like he turned himself into kind of like a cottage industry. He was a guy who didn't even need to have the title 
or didn't need to be in title contention. We just knew him as the cowboy, like a pro wrestling gimmick, pretty much, where you would tune in to watch this guy fight because you you knew he was going to be exciting. You knew what you were going to get. And that was it. And like, it's hard to do that in the UFC, especially these days. So shout out, frankly, to Donald Cerrone for making himself into a recognizable character in a sport that would rather not have you be a recognizable character. Yeah, well, and how many of the fighters you would hear chiming in and be like, I, I would never miss a Donald Cerrone fight. I mean, right. that's, for, especially for the kind of Hall of Fame we're having, that is kind of one of the criteria that maybe we should count, you know? Yeah. All right, I want to do this one from Mackenzie Chitwood, who writes, scrolling through Twitter this Saturday evening and see an MMA junkie article talking about how Dana White are talking about Dana White's insistence that Colby Covington get the next shot at 170. The following is an excerpt that partially gives us the great and powerful cue balls reasoning. That was a no brainer. White said, if Usman doesn't exist, Colby's been the champ now for a while. He's been there forever. Ah, yes. Now it all makes sense. If only a specific (laughs) human just happened to never exist, Colby would have already been reigning over this division. Great stuff, you absolute piece of Boston trash. Well, whoa, whoa. We went hard there at the end, but like this is also legitimately hilarious reasoning, right? I mean, one could argue that at this point, Dana White is far more of a Las Vegas piece of trash than he is a Boston piece of trash. But that that, that took a a turn I I wasn't entirely expecting there. This is the ultimate he would have won if he hadn't lost, right? This is the ultimate, like, he would have been champion if he wasn't not champion. Okay, I'm going to read to you the quote from the press conference. There's there's a couple parts to it here. First, he says... um, and first, they're like, oh, I know you don't like to make fights right after the fights, which bullshit. He does like to do it all the time. Just occasionally when he's not ready to do it, he'll act like it's insane that you would even ask him. But other times, he's very willing to do it. He says, it's true that we don't do that, but that was a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. I mean, if Usman doesn't exist, Colby's been the champ for now for a while, and he's been there forever. He cut the weight. He showed up to fill in for that fight and a million other reasons why he deserves that fight. A million other reasons that we could list, but so far the only reasons we did list is because he lost to the champ twice and he cut weight and showed up to be the backup, which means basically he did us a solid, which is kind of one of the things that we were thinking about later. But then later he goes into more uh, justification. Why would Colby not deserve the fight? Can somebody explain that to me? Uh, who was it, Chad, who wanted to raise awareness that Colby Covington has not beaten somebody <laughs> coming off a win since 2018 when he beat Rafael Dos Anjos? Because that, that, there's an explanation. He got jumped and was actually injured from it. Leon didn't fight for like almost two years. Do you remember why Leon didn't fight for almost two years, Chad? Because I, I seem to recall it had something to do with, oh yeah, there being a fucking pandemic and he was basically stuck in England. Anyway... Uh, it's not like I'm a big fan. Oh, Colby, 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 Colby Covington deserves this shot at the title. And I don't blame Leon. Leon just got through with Usman twice. And now he's looking at another wrestler with a funky style. That's tough to deal with, but that's it. When you become the champ, everybody's coming after you. So to recap the reasoning why Colby Covington deserves the title shot. He cut the weight. He showed up to be the backup. He lost to Usman twice. And so if, in the alternate universe where Usman doesn't exist, we assume Colby Covington would have just be, been the champion. Also, he got jumped by Jorge Masvidal coming out the poppy <laughs> steak and was actually injured from it. Um, these are your reasons and a million other reasons that you're not going to name. Not one of those reasons has anything to do with winning fights, though. 
Yeah. Like you're trying to tell me why he deserves a title shot and you did not mention a single fight that he's won that shows you why. Like normally that's how it works. Normally in order to get the fight, you've got to win some other fights. And so you're trying to, you would be trying to point to those fights that somebody has won and explain why those are worthy of something else. And here you're pointing to a lot of out of the cage stuff. One of which was just getting punched in the face, walking out of a steakhouse. I don't know how that qualifies you for a UFC title fight. Although it does lend a little bit of credence to somebody in a live chat. Remember where they came up with a conspiracy theory that what if Colby was convinced to drop his charges against Jorge Masvidal mm. in exchange for the title shot. I mean, bringing up him getting jumped outside the poppy steak lends a little bit of tinfoil hatness to that whole conspiracy theory. But you didn't list anything, like any fight that he's won that yeah. justifies it. It's a lot of other crap. Yeah, those three or four reasons are pretty shitty. I would like to hear the other million. If Dana yeah, White yes. could go the back into the million. 000. Yeah, if he could go into the 900, the 900 thousand nine hundred ninety six other reasons and see if you can find some better ones i would love to hear them because those reasons aren't good and you're right somebody over on the live chat on the patreon page last wednesday did in fact raise awareness to the fact that colby covington hasn't beaten anyone coming off a win for several years and you and i speculated and dana white seems to kind of confirm it here that colby covington maybe flew over to england cut weight for no money, maybe, or just to do the UFC a favor. And because of that, or one of the one of the one million reasons mm-hmm. why he now deserves a title shot, that is listed as one of them. So that's interesting. That's fucking interesting, man. Yep. All right. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link at the top of the page that says email the podcast. That will get you in touch with us. Right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, we got some great news this week. Our old friends at Fulton and Rourke are back. Well, actually, they never left. They're still at it. They're still out there making what are, in my opinion, the best personal grooming products on the market. From their solid fragrances to their wonderful bar soaps, the Formula 5 oil for your hair and skin, and their aluminum-free deodorant, which I'm wearing right now, actually. Uh, Ben, tell the kids at home a little bit more about Fulton and Rourke. I'm glad you asked, Chad. See, all four of those products that you mentioned are available across 12 different fragrances, and you can get them all in product sets that allow you to layer on your favorite one. So no more smelling like a hodgepodge of various deodorants and bar soaps. Now, you can smell like one coherent thing, finally. And, you know, one thing I've always said about you, and I'll say it right to your face, you need a more coherent smell, Chad. Yeah, no, you know, that's true. I can't even argue with that. 
Uh, Fulton and Rourke are the CME's longest standing sponsors. You've definitely heard us talk about them here before. We've used their products ourselves. They are the best. And we've met these guys in person. They're cool. They make great stuff. And they're also MMA fans, which never hurts. Here's some exciting news. Fulton and Rourke has just relaunched their sample packs. So you can find the fragrance that's right for you before you commit to a full-sized order. Basically, Fulton and Rourke will send you a small sample amount of their most popular fragrances. And you can pick the one you like the best. On top of that, your first sample set comes with a coupon towards your next purchase. Go check it all out right now at FultonandRourke.com. And because they deeply love the Comaniacs, you can save 20% off your order with the code CME20. Again, that's FultonandRourke.com and the code CME20. CME20. Ben, the book on Marlon Vera for a while now has been that he is a slow starter, that he likes to go out there and see what his opponent is doing and kind of work up to a frenzied pace in his fights. And frankly, he makes a bet with himself that he has the knockout power in the bantamweight division to maybe fall behind a little bit at the beginning and then storm back to win by stoppage or some other kind of eye-opening highlight reel situation. Corey Sandhagen did not allow him to do that, man. Corey Sandhagen came out here firing from the word go, looking technical, looking sophisticated, as he was called at one point on the UFC broadcast, switching stances, shooting takedowns, roughing up Chito Vera a little bit on the ground, doing damage early on to kind of take away the threat of that late burst from Chito Vera. And in some ways, man, this was a y'all must have forgot performance from Corey Sandhagen who, as I said at the top of the show, kind of reaffirmed his status as part of the quote-unquote old guard of men's bantamweight contenders. He's still here. Chito Vera is going to need some additional work now to be considered really among that elite group. Yeah, it's interesting the the reputation as a slow starter, especially because it's one thing for that narrative to take hold about you in uh, among the commentary, among the fans or anything, but you could hear it in his corner. Yeah, You could hear, like, they are aware that this is a problem. And they were befuddled going into round number three. Ed Jason Perillo over there being like, hey, man, you okay? He actually said, he said these words. You know how I love corner man work. Yep. He said these words. You're kind of bumming me out right now. That was one of the things he said to his <laughs> fighter before the third round. You're kind of bumming oh. me out right now. Yeah, and see... I also, I thought it was interesting listening to some of Corey Sandhagen's comments after the fight where he was saying, when I had him down early on, like the first or second round, and he was just sort of accepting that, or at least not with an urgency, trying to get back up and and stop what was happening. And he said that during the fight, he kind of felt like, what are you doing? What Like, how are you thinking that you're going to win this fight if you are okay with this happening for now as long as you know you're not being finished you're not in any huge danger like basically saying like i know the way judges work and the way the scorecards work and i know that he's losing he's giving up rounds this way is he that confident that he's just going to be able to finish you later on or to get that back later on because the thing you have to take into account is that the other guy also knows how the shit works he's going to know when you are down two or three rounds that now the onus is on you 
It has yeah. shifted. You have to be the one to go out there and take these rounds. He can afford to let the last couple rounds be close if he feels like he's got three in the bank. And, you know, even if the judges side with you on both those last two rounds, he feels like, okay, I I, I kind of got this one. And it you, you put yourself into a, a hole there where he knows you got to come to him. And that makes his job a lot easier, especially when you're somebody like Corey Sandhagen, where the thing that he does very well is makes it just hard for you to reach him, make it hard, hard for you to find him in there. And that's what it seemed like, especially when Marlon Vera was finally picking up the output a little more. He still just couldn't quite find him, couldn't yeah. quite get to him. And yeah. it's it makes it so much easier on the guy to be like, OK, now I know you've got to turn it up and I have options. I, I could meet you at that point. I could avoid that point a little bit. I could use the the need for aggression that you have against you in a, in a few different ways. And you just can't, especially if you get up in the higher levels of, of any division, but especially a talent-rich division like Bantamweight, you can't afford for that to be a thing everybody knows about you because yeah. they're going to use yeah. it against you. Yeah. Uh, Corey Sandhagen, he's very good, which maybe we forget sometimes. He gets a little bit lost in the shuffle in this division. He's very good. He's very technical. He reaffirmed that this weekend. He's only 30 years old, so he's still got a lot of life left in him. He's sort of, you could argue, really only coming into his own as an MMA fighter once you get into your mid or early 30s there. His career losses in the UFC are Peter Yawn, TJ Dillashaw, which was a split decision, and then he lost to Aljamain Sterling back in 2020 but otherwise he's he's won them all and he had lost those D Dillashaw and Jan fights back to back in 2021 since then he has put two wins between himself and that losing streak Song Yudong and now Marlon Vera uh, and he's a guy who just shapes up as one who is going to be hanging around at the top of this division for a long time and is going to be as we saw against Marlon Vera here a bit of a problem at times for up-and-comers or guys who were trying to break into that elite at the in that weight class and i don't know that i would call Corey sandhagen a gatekeeper because i think he's better than that but like he's a tough out man he's a tough out for these guys who might be trying to make a name for themselves as bantamweight contenders uh let's talk about the weird scorecard here okay it was a split decision which seemed to surprise everyone you had a uh, 47 48 for Sandhagen. You had a 50-45 or no, you had a 48 for 48 47 for Vera. Then you had a 50-45, which is a clean sweep for Corey Sandhagen, and you had a 49-46, which means he lost one round for Sandhagen. So that is a bit of a disparity and as we said before, uh the judge who turned in the outlier, the dissenting scorecard here for Marlon Vera, a guy who is a referee, so like Dan, Big Dan, he's seen a lot of fights, but he doesn't appear to have a lot of high-level judging experience and when you got yourself a 25 minute five round main event fight i just don't know if that's where that guy should be i don't know if that's where he should be getting that experience yeah i mean it made me wonder because when i looked him up on mmadecisions.com and i was like are they missing some data for him does he has he done a lot of other fights that aren't on here because this would have you believe that these are the first two fights that he's ever judged on this yeah. one night and one of them was the main event that don't make no damn sense yeah. and somebody in Who's who's working their first event at the judges' table, and you would put them in the main event? Like I hope there's a whole lot of information missing because you you know you don't you don't really see much there. Uh, well, actually, no, you do see he has one other event uh, in 2022 that he worked uh, the 
the UFC on ESPN 37 fight card. Um, that was the Calvin Cutter, Josh Emmett one also in Texas. But it's like, if the guy's only judging fights in Texas and he works at the judges table once a year, again, I don't know if that's the, the guy he, he, uh, was in the main event for that one. I don't know like why you would keep putting him in the main event there. Um, it is weird too, especially, you know, I try to give the judges some leeway yeah. when we're looking at a close fight. People want to get really mad where it's like 29, 28, 29, 28, 28, 29, you know? And it's like, Hey, if it is two rounds to one and it's that close, it's usually at least plausible that somebody could have seen it you know, one of those rounds the other way and fine. Even if they're the only one who did see it that way, it's not egregious. This one, I cannot understand how you yeah. watch this fight. I don't understand how you find three rounds there that you think Marlon Vera won. His corner can't find three rounds. They think he won. <laughs> I don't understand what the hell you could have been looking at. Yeah. That's what baffles me on this one. And I don't know, again, what's going on in Texas that, like, apparently they can't find anyone more experienced to judge these apparently, like, fairly high-profile fights, which is... And you can cost fighters money with this stuff. Yeah. So it's a, it's not a small deal. I want to read Dana White's quote that he gave at the post-fight press conference. He says, I was literally coming out of the bathroom, and I was like, what the fuck? White said at the post-fight press conference, were you surprised? It could have been 5-0. It could have been 4-1. But split? Wow. That's pretty scary. Now, first of all, TMI. We, <laughs> we could have left out the part about here how you're coming out of the shitter. And you hear you hear the, the decision. Could have, just, could have just been like, yeah, I was surprised by the decision, man. Yeah, you don't yeah. have to coming out of the VIP bathroom at the AT&T Center. And all of a sudden you hear the, de the decision. Uh, but yeah, this is again, wow, that's pretty scary. And yet Texas is one of the UFC's favorite places to go right now for a lot of different reasons. But look, man, these problems ain't new down there in the Lone Star State. We have known them as one of the more permissive, you know, I'm just going to say it, one of the more incompetent uh, athletic commissions of the major fight states. And yet... The UFC loves it, man. They love to go down to Texas with their lenient rules and their uh, tax laws that are going to let everybody keep all the money and, uh, you know, permissive uh, rules and, and license fees, site fees for the UFC to go there and get paid just for coming. So yeah. we're going to keep going there is the moral of the story. Yeah. Uh, and that's the thing, too, is that you, we know why the UFC likes to go to Texas, but we also know that the UFC can exert some more power if they want to and exert some more pressure on some of these athletic missions if you feel like like if you actually care that they seem like they might be putting people in these positions that are not ready or qualified to do that the UFC, remember when Dana White showed up at a press conference and yelled about the Nevada State Athletic Commission and how the governor needs to fucking investigate it just because he didn't like the decision in the Johnny Hendricks GSP fight and Soon thereafter, Keith Kaiser was like, I am resigning as executive director and going back to private practice. Fuck this shit. And then, you know, the UFC gets a much more uh, friendly and malleable and easy to work with commission in the, the years following that in the wake of all that. You could do that if you care enough uh, to be like, hey, you need to not have this guy be trying out MMA judging in the main event of our shows. Um, and it's just a matter of like, do you, do you care enough to exert that kind of pressure? 
Corey Sandhagen calls out Marab Dwalishwili after this fight. And you know what I liked about this? He told us he had a line for us. He's like, hey, wait, I got a line for you. I hope it's not too cheesy. Then he says, Marab, you say you're hungry? Well, I've got something for you, and it don't taste good. Okay. Do you like this? Do you like Corey Sandhagen realizing that he's got a cheesy line to drop on us and letting us know, like kind of apologizing in advance for yeah. what he's about to say? Does that work for you, or did he undercut his own heat here? I mean, especially the kind of guy that Corey Sandhagen comes off as. I don't think we'd buy it if he just came up and he was like trying to act like this was an off-the-cuff thing and not something he practiced in the bathroom mirror of his hotel room all week. We would recognize this as here's a guy who had a scripted thing ready for in case he won and so that he could make the most of the opportunity. Honestly, I think him sort of giving us the heads up that he's about to do a thing, it, it's endearing in a way because he's basically saying, <laughs> I, I know this is what you guys expect of me. Like, this is what I should do in this situation. So, okay, I worked on one. Here, you guys want to hear it? It's kind of like if you're going to do a magic trick at a party, you know, and you're not a real magician. It's, but it's something that you just worked on and like, and to be like, okay, you guys want to see this dumbass magic trick that I learned? Um, okay. It's fucking stupid. You guys want to see? And everybody will be like, okay. But if you're just like showing up in a cape and a fucking top hat, <laughs> trying to make flowers appear out of the end of a cane, people are going to be like, this isn't you. What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think it works here. It's uh it's self-awareness. It's self-awareness, yeah. which I appreciate out of an MMA fighter. And so I like it uh, for Corey Sandhagen here. Uh, all right, real quick before we move on to Are You Fucking Kidding Me? We had several people write in, including our guy Bo from the Evergreen State over there on Patreon, kind of suggesting Chito Vera against Peter Yon next. Does that make sense to you? You know what? Sure. I, I could see it as a fight where we we felt like both of you were headed for bigger things. Uh, we're wondering if we were wrong. And why don't the two of you fight to see who still has a future? Yeah. I, I don't hate that idea. That's as as far as stakes go to for establishing a you know a non-title and at this point, frankly, non-contender fight, I think that's good enough. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, let's get into Are You Fucking Kidding Me before we move on. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, Chad, I just I felt like I needed to circle back on this one. We talked about this a little bit during our associated Patreon properties last week, but <sighs> Colby Covington. Want to go out there and threaten John Anik? Yeah. I'm still thinking about this one, especially because Colby Covington in his ongoing dumbest heel you know gimmick says that John Anik was kissing his ass in public by basically doing the job of like UFC commentator and trying to put a, a positive spotlight on even people who do not deserve one, uh, but then wants to hang out with, in Colby Covington's words, a racist like Bilal Muhammad. And then he, he threatens at one point to orphan John Anik's children. Yeah. To points out that they live not too far away from each other. And basically implying he could go pay him a visit. And then your kids will grow up without a dad. Are you fucking kidding me? How fucking stupid do you have to be to think that this is your path to a sort of bankable notoriety? Because for one thing, the idea that people always want to say whenever Colby Covington says something dumb like this is, hey, he's just he's he's selling tickets, man. He's selling pay-per-views. He's making you care about him. First of all, no, he's not. He's not doing those things. Because if you look at Colby Covington's fights, it's not like they do super well 
in those metrics that you would usually see as the whole reason to trade in any ounce of personal credibility you may have. He doesn't he doesn't reap the rewards like a Chael Sonnen does in that regard. Also, I don't know if you guys noticed this, he's never going to be booked in a fight against John Anik because John Anik is not a fighter. He is a kind of beloved commentator. And so to go out of your way to pick that particular fight tells me that you are maybe not the genius self-promoter that some people want to give you credit for. It tells me that you think in very simplistic terms about this, that it's just a matter of saying the most egregious and reprehensible shit you can think of at any one moment, throwing it all at the wall, seeing what sticks. It basically tells us that you are playing chess and thinking that it's checkers the entire time. Are you fucking kidding me? And we're going to tell you how this guy deserves a title shot for all of his out-of-the-cage stuff? That's the justification? See, that's really all you're telling me is why somebody might want to walk up and punch him outside Poppy Steak. Do you think that's on the million reasons? Threatened John Anik with death? Do you think that's on the million reasons why he deserves a title <laughs> Threatened shot? Threatened to orphan a beloved commentator's children. Uh... Yeah, it's just lame. It's lame to threaten John Anik more than on top of everything else. Lame. That's lame to do that, man. You're a professional fighter. Are you going to uh, threaten the commentary to commentator who is uh, no, totally himself non-threatening, goes out of his way to be non-threatening, does John Anik. Seems like a nice guy, very professional, has a lot of friends, not a huge man, Not a doesn't <laughs> go out there and tower over Colby Covington by any stretch of the imagination. Just lame. It's lame, man. That's lame, lame to do that. Ben, did you see Patty Pimblett talking shit from his hospital bed this week? <laughs> yes. You fucking kidding me? Talking <laughs> shit from his hospital bed. Nine minute long. You know, uh, Patty Pimblett's team produces these videos about him, which is uh, it's a good thing to do. It's, uh, you know, he's promoting himself. It's great. I like it. They're like old video blogs about Patty Pimblett. They need subtitles. Because he's Ooh, sitting in his hospital okay. bed talking shit about Jared Gordon. I don't understand half of it. But I will just repeat myself. He is sitting in his hospital bed talking shit about Jared Gordon. He just went in and had surgery on his his injured angle, his injured ankle, and he's talking shit about Jared Gordon while he's in the hospital. Man says basically, Patty Pimblett says he would have won if he hadn't lost in this in this mm-hmm, fight. Mm-hmm. And then here's the thing that I like. He's talking about uh, Jared Gordon talking about how, you know, he won the decision over Patty Pimblett, et cetera, et cetera. He should have got the win. He should have. He deserved to get the decision. Patty Pimblett says this. You won a split decision over Joe Selecki in a fight that you lost. So you should just shut your mouth. And that makes me think, did Patty Pimblett just admit that he didn't actually win and that he got a gift decision? Because he's kind of making an equivalency there. He's kind of comparing that to what happened to Jared Gordon. Are you fucking kidding me? I think we uh, I think we lost the thread here talking yeah. shit from our hospital beds there, Patty Pimblett. Also, he's kind of saying that I lost to a guy who deserved to lose to Joe Selecki. <laughs> yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. There I don't, you go. The transitive property is not really working out in your favor here. I mean. I just, I love a guy talking shit from his hospital bed. You fucking kidding me? It's great. Never a better time to look like a hard ass dude than when you're up in the hospital. <laughs> Wearing one of those smocks. All right. Got a big walking boot on one leg. All right. Let's, let's uh, go ahead. We're going to get started with round number two. Take me away. 
We'll chat in the co-main event on Saturday, Holly Holm, or as she is frequently known on this podcast, Holly Holmes, went out there and did some classic Holly Holmes stuff in a unanimous decision win over Yana Santos. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I found it to be an especially exciting or even all that interesting of a fight. I mean, it is impressive, I will say, that Holly Holm, at the age of 41, still out here, can do this stuff to uh, fighters in, you know, probably arguably two different divisions that she really wanted to, and is still going to be a tough out for anybody Puts herself sort of back in this conversation again, 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 yeah. brother, mm-hmm. uh, as as potential future title contenders. And then, as my man E. Casey Lydon pointed out on Twitter, it's always a panic-inducing moment yeah. at the end of a fighter's post-fight interview for them to say, oh, one more thing that I really wanted to mention. And if you have been a fan of this sport for any length of time, you know, oh boy, here we yeah. go. Because it could be... It could be a lot of stuff. Like, it could be just like the way she was doing before, where she was like wanted to shout out her family, her training team, her her, her fans, all this stuff. Um, it could be you know some some sick kid in a hospital somewhere they're thinking about like by name. It could be a call out of somebody, or it could be something else. And for Holly Holm, the something else was calling for an end to the sexualization of children. Something's been on my heart, and I feel like I have the platform to say it. I need to say it. I just feel it's really sad, all the sexualization of our children right now, and we need to protect them, whatever that may be. Let's protect the children, please. Now, the weird thing about that is that on its face, that should not be a controversial statement. Like, okay, yeah, let's, by all means, let's not sexualize children. I think that we could all agree on that, except... To make that comment in the current climate and to not really follow up with any specifics about what exactly do you mean by that? That's where it gets weird because it's like you clearly have something in mind about it, but what is the something? She doesn't ever quite say. And the, the, the cultural zeitgeist at the moment would seem to suggest that at least one of the things on your mind is like the boogeyman of, uh, the right wing fury over, the their imagination that children are being constantly inundated with drag shows that they're yeah. they're in their mind there are just drag shows constantly showing up wherever children are and forcing children to watch them and or maybe it's you know just like uh gender identity stuff that is more in the news and i don't it, it seems like that's the kind of stuff you have in mind because for some reason when you say this at this moment i don't think that what you have in mind are like those weirdo child beauty pageants. Yeah. I don't think that what you have in mind are all the, the uh, GOP led States where you can marry a 13 year old, as long as you have the parents permission. Somehow, I don't think that's the stuff that you're necessarily talking about, but she was given a chance, even in the post fight press conference to kind of clarify, like, what are you talking about? And she doesn't really name it at all. And so it's weird to even know, like, what are we talking about here? Yeah. Yeah, I think I want to make two disclaimers before I make my statement. The first disclaimer, as you said, we don't know what she meant by this. And if she means to imply that uh, we want to send a positive body image out there for girls and women and speak out about the media's general focus on their bodies, okay, that would be a good thing. My second disclaimer is save the hate mail. 
don't send us no emails about, oh, I wish you guys would keep politics out of MMA because we didn't fucking do it. Okay? We didn't do this, man. We didn't do fucking shit. We if didn't you, rig shit. If you want to be mad about somebody bringing politics into MMA, be mad at Holly Holmes. Okay? Because she's the one who done it. She is the one who brought politics into mixed martial arts. Do not send us your hate mail. You will be telling on yourself and you will look like a fucking moron. So don't do it. Now, Ben, this a little bit, maybe it's just ebbs and flows because we had Marab Dwalashvili say Slava Ukraine in his post-fight interview a couple weeks ago. Now you have Holly Holmes saying, stop the sexualization of the children. So it's a little bit of back and forth. But the problem with Holly Holmes saying, stop the sexualization of our children is that a lot of right-wing conspiracy mongers and culture war idiots have turned the phrase sexualization of children into coded language. Yeah. Essentially for the hate of trans people and drag shows, as you mentioned. And they use it to try to stop things like school curriculums from discussing gender identity and sex and weirdly, sometimes even race. And it's all part of a much larger, like much more sinister and insidious effort by right wing trolls to try to brand anyone who opposes them as perverts and Mm -hmm. child molesters, which we've seen now for years in American politics. And it's sad, man. Uh, We saw them try to do this to Joe Biden, try to brand him as like a pedophile. And honestly, it's nothing more than an admission by the right that their own ideas are shitty, right? Because if you have to essentially try to brand your opponents as pedophiles, it means all your ideas are shitty, Your candidates are shitty, that you are eternally trying to trick people into voting against their own best interests. And so, so people don't have to, so people don't find out about them. You're trying to distract them with this other language because nobody would vote for the right if they knew what they were actually doing and what they stood for. So what they essentially try to say is, well, we know we suck super bad, but the other side are child molesters. It's a trick that they use to keep conservative voters from even considering alternatives. And if that is what Holly Holm is saying here, that like we need to stop teaching gender identity and sexual uh, politics and sexual education in schools, that ain't it, man. Holly, that ain't it. If she was just trying to say something positive, whatever. But it really sounds like she's been watching too much Tucker Carlson is my suspicion. In the, in the post-fight press conference when she was asked to expand a little bit and explain, and here would have been a great opportunity to tell us exactly what you mean. Quote, you know, there's a lot of things I don't ever want to be. I'm not even a real political person. I don't like to put that stuff around any of my social media, but there's also just right and wrong. I feel like everybody should be on the same side on that. I don't feel like that has anything to do with left side, right side, or anything like that. I feel like everybody should be wanting to protect their children. There's a lot of child trafficking. I mean, that's like the extreme part. There's a lot of levels to it. You see it almost being more accepted, and I think that's really sad. I feel like we should all do what we can. A lot of people don't know what to do, but at least if I can have a voice on it, then that's something I can speak out on and it's just to get everybody together to protect children it affects people in their long-term life too i have friends that are adults and their biggest that kind of is a shadow kind of dark space for them is being sexualized when they were young i feel like it's almost getting accepted and see you're right that it's like if what you're talking about is like we have fostered a culture 
that tells especially young girls that their value lies in their attractiveness to men and that they will be that that sort of lens will be forced on them even while they were very young and before they even really understand that it's happening and it's it, it won't be even left up to them then i would say like yeah i i agree with that point and especially you know I, we both have daughters you start to especially as a man there's a lot of that stuff that you have the luxury of not noticing yeah. Uh, for most of your life and then you notice it and you go oh man yeah this our culture really does do this and that is extremely worrying but it also seems like especially with the the current climate it seems like let's protect our children it has become kind of as you said coded language for this sort of boogeyman of let's protect them from hearing about anything that i don't personally agree with right and it's if, if you don't mean that, it, then this the the post fight press conference would have been a great time to just say what it is that you do mean, and especially I think maybe people like us come at it. We're so used to when a fighter goes, "Hey, here's a cause I feel really strongly about." We don't go, "Oh, good, maybe they're going to shine a light on something that needs more attention." We're just used to, as you've said before, them aligning themselves with the worst people. Andrew Tate gets arrested and we, we rush to his defense. Whoever is going to be like the worst person that other sports leagues and other uh, like sports properties are trying to back away from. MMA seems to want to embrace those people. And so we are already programmed to be like, uh-oh, here it comes. And so when we hear something vague like this, maybe it's our first inclination to think like it's the worst thing. Yeah. Which you, the, the thing that you're talking about here is the worst <clears throat> possible thing. I mean, hey, man, anytime anybody mentions human trafficking, they have run a red flag up the flagpole that says I have been tricked by right wing media. I have been consuming too much right wing media. And now I believe in a false reality that they have sold me. So end of story. Uh, She's a big, impressive athlete and she looks good in these fights. You feel like she could do more at times. And so she sometimes is uh, frustrating to watch. But she's a great boxer. She has good kicks. At one point in this fight, she lands an absolutely vicious elbow to the face of Yana Santos here and follows it up with like three front kicks to the face, which is like that just gives you a little taste of what Holly Holm is capable of. And if she mixes the wrestling with that, that's a hard person to beat. Man, right, and, and that is the thing that I think that as a fighter, Holly Holm deserves a lot of credit for is that she came in as a, a boxer and kickboxer and now can go out there and kind of beat people just with wrestling if she wants to, which is not a thing that we see that often. When if you come from like a stand-up based striking based arts to go in there and kind of like there's been several fights where it's like she could just wrestle and beat you. Yeah. And yeah. that's that's impressive. I also found it interesting, Chad, Holly Holm, before this fight we heard, announced like a new six fight contract with the UFC. Yeah. Which, when I hear about a 41-year-old fighter signing a six-fight contract uh, with the UFC, I feel kind of like when I bought a house and the bank gave me a 30-year mortgage when I was 41. And I was like, <laughs> that's optimistic of you guys, you know? Yeah. To think, think I'm, I'm going to last long enough to pay off this 30-year mortgage, but okay. Like, six-fight deal tells you, okay, you know. Whatever you're concerned, you're not looking to finish up a deal and then go do some celebrity boxing or whatever. You know, you're you decided you're staying put. Yeah. Uh, and again, this is a UFC co-main event where the two people in it were both coming off losses. So uh, Holly Holm gets the win here. But don't be mad at us for spending the time talking about what she said after the fight, because 
that's the story. When, when the like she was event, asked, she brought it up herself. When this, when the co-main event is two people uh, coming off a loss, and then the person who wins says some bizarre shit in the post-fight interview, that's the story. Again, don't send us emails. We get it. You don't like. Go ahead, it. write that email. Put all put all the energy into it. Uh, print it out. Use a printer. Go to a, go to a library if you have to. Perhaps a, a FedEx Kinkos. Print it out on a nice clean sheet of printer paper. Fold it up and stick it right up your ass. <laughs> Just put your feelings into it and then tear yeah. it up. That's what I would say. Mm-hmm. That's what your therapist would Keep tell it you in to drafts. do. This if you went to therapy. All right, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, the PFL returns this week for its 2023 season. And I guess to continue the discussion we've been having over a long period of time about whether or not the PFL has overtaken Bellator as the number two MMA promotion in America, this is an interesting fight card featuring several names that we know and some compelling matchups and some people that we recognize from the UFC. You've got your main event here, which I believe begins the featherweight tournament, which is Brendan Lochnane against Marlon Marais. So that is interesting. You also have Rob Wilkinson taking on former UFC fighter Tiago Santos in what I believe is his PFL debut. And if you pay close attention to the UFC, you will also recognize the name Christoph Jotko, who I believe is also making his PFL debut. Now, how hyped do you get for a fight card like this where the PFL can put, you know, a couple of compelling matchups out there with some recognizable names? And at this point, you know, not to continue to, to beat a dead horse, but do you believe that the PFL is now the number two organization in America, perhaps having overtaken Scotty Cox and his island of misfit toys over there in Bellator? The question of whether they are number two now depends on what you think the qualifications are to be number two. Because I think right now, if you look at just who you have on the roster in different weight classes, Bellator has a pretty strong case in several divisions to saying, we might have the best guy in the world at yeah. this weight class. And I, I think that they have that claim way stronger than any other promotion uh, you know, outside the UFC. And yet, I increasingly wonder how much that matters because if what we're really asking about number two promotion is, doesn't it seem like we're asking about popularity and about you know number of viewers you get each week that you have an yeah, event? Maybe, but that's also and kind of unfair for Bellator, right? Because it is PFL because they're on ESPN Plus and Bellator exactly is hidden behind a paywall. So it's kind of like an availability issue and like a ease of access issue where. You have a huge advantage if you're the other MMA promotion on the UFC's essentially dedicated streaming platform at this point. Because if you're going to be a fight fan, you kind of got to have ESPN+. And if you already have it, then it doesn't take that much for the PFL to be like, oh, hey, couldn't help but notice there was no UFC event planned for this weekend, but we have something for you and it's on the same shit. You don't even have to do anything else to find it. So right there, that's such a huge advantage. And especially with Bellator being like, okay... 
Uh, first of all, you're going to have to go to Showtime, which is a paid premium service. Oh, and also, if you go to the Showtime app, it's going to make it goddamn impossible for you to ever tell when some shit is on. Uh, the Showtime app is one of the worst, man. And that stuff works against you, but it's in terms of like who you actually have and the fights you can put on, Bellator should have you beat there. Yeah. And yet, I don't know if that's actually what ends up mattering. You know, when you look yeah. at like how people, like what di- dictates being number two, I think that maybe the fact that people can just sort of show up and watch the shit counts for a whole hell of a lot. Yeah, I think you're right in that it is largely an exposure issue and it is just easier for the PFL to be on our radar. And frankly, if you're an MMA fan, ESPN Plus is just a thing that you have to have. You got to have it because you got to watch the UFC and you got to watch the Seattle Kraken. So you already have ESPN Plus and that just makes it easy for you to, to tune in and watch the PFL. They have a good broadcast. They have a good professional broadcast. It's easy to watch. They put too much shit on the screen. They're too a little much bit shit. too much shit on there. Too much into like the smart cage and some of these metrics that don't really mean anything. But it's 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 pleasing to watch the PFL and they are starting to put on some of these events like this one coming up this week that are real. They're eye catching and you should if you're an MMA fan you should watch them because they are going to be probably compelling. But you mentioned this. Here are some people who are Bellator champions right now: Usman Nurmagomedov, Yaroslav Amasov. Uh, Johnny Eblen and Vadim Nemkov, all of whom could make a credible case to being the number one fighter in the world in their weight class right now. They also have Patricio Pitbull, Young Serge, Sergio Pettis, Chris Cyborg, uh, Liz Carmouche, and Ryan Bader. So those are their champions right now. So that, you know, for the most part, that's a pretty uh, impressive collection of champions for Bellator. And yet, you're probably not going to go over to the Showtime app and sign up for it to watch things like this Friday's card, where the main event is Marcelo Golm against Daniel James in a heavyweight contender fight. The co-main event is Kat Zingano versus Liam McCourt. So that's what you're getting from Bellator this weekend. But I agree with you that in general, Bellator probably has more top fighters at this point still than the PFL. And I did want to mention this. I don't want to just drag Bellator here for their somewhat low profile event coming up Friday. Cause God knows the UFC does that almost every damn week too. Now puts on a low profile, arguably uh, missable event. Yeah. Uh, Bellator also announced this today, June 16th, Patricio Pitbull goes for a world title in his third weight class as he faces bantamweight champ, young Serge, Sergio mm-hmm. Pettis. So that's a fight you should mark your calendar for. And on the same card, Vadim Nemkov will defend his light heavyweight title against Yoel Romero. That's going to be at the Trust Arena in Chicago. So, you know, this one's not great. But then Bellator turns around and announces this other card, which that is one you should figure out a way to watch. Because especially yeah. with Pitbull versus Pettis, like, ah, that's going to be a good fight, man. Yeah. Do you think, in terms of just maintaining week-to-week interest, uh, and you know, we talked about the access issue, but PFL has that sort of—I don't want to call it a gimmick because that seems to have a negative connotation—but they have the thing with the season, and yeah. we know how it works. You get the season, then we get into the tournament at the end, million dollar. We're gonna hand you a big ass check, all that kind of shit. And Bellator has something similar sometimes with like the Grand Prix that they have sort of seized on as being a thing that we can do and run pretty regularly. Do you think that? 
in terms of picking up some ground as a promotion who's not named the UFC, does it make a big difference to have this thing where fans can be like, hey, man, you tell me the new PFL season starts, if I know enough about it, even if I don't know exactly everybody's name who is beginning this season, I know what the season thing means at this point. I get I got a sense of how it's structured and how you do it, and therefore you can kind of get me to tune in. Yeah, it's a tough question because one of the things that we always say is if you are not the UFC, if you are one of these kind of B-level promotions, then give me something different. Give me something different from what the UFC is doing. Set yourself apart so that you don't look just look like a slightly shittier version of the UFC. And I guess PFL is doing that. It kind of sucks that we had already seen the season gimmick kind of come and go from other MMA promotions, one of which used to employ Ben Folks, by the way, the IFL. Uh, and so I think that generates less interest, but I mean, I guess you could do worse. I think for the most part, people want to see cool fight cards. And when you got Brendan Lochnane against Marlon Moraes, that's a cool fight card. And it's one that people want to watch. I guess there is probably some interest to be derived from the season format. And then you get into the, the playoffs and the championship and things like that. And it certainly has helped guys like Brendan Lochnane specifically, who uh, was already well known for his, uh, questionable uh you know snubbing by Dana White at the end of the Dana White contender series etc cetera, etc cetera. but probably you know winning the season helps a guy like that it helps some of the other PFL guys uh i guess in terms of gimmicks it's not the worst thing that i've ever seen but it is something that we've seen tried before and so when you hear about it i think you have a tendency to kind of be like eh well whatever yeah all right, let's do uh, just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. As we mentioned uh, at the top of the show, Ben Folks, the UFC was down at the AT&T Center in San Antonio, and you get the impression that it is refreshing or perhaps uplifting for some of these fighters to get out there and do the damn thing in front of a live crowd instead of being over at the largely empty apex in Las Vegas as they were for the entire pandemic and beyond. In fact, 16,000 people the official attendance at this UFC fight night event on Saturday. Uh, you had a couple of regional favorites. You had uh, Chito Vera on there and then Holly Holm, who is sneaky popular. People forget how popular she is, but she got a nice ovation and ovation and some fan support from the crowd down there. But you know who really loves the live crowd? You know who loves it almost more than anyone else? I'm just saying buffer. buffer fucking loves the live crowd if you didn't notice go back and rewatch the introduction for the main event of this thing because you want bruce buffer to spinal tap style turn it up to 11 give him sixteen thousand. give him a full house down there at the at&t center and uh, and all of a sudden you're gonna think oh bruce buffer is already bombastic as a ufc uh public address announcer oh brother you got no idea until you you let the dog out the cage and all of a sudden he's out there in front of sixteen thousand, and he's he's gonna give you everything he's got i'm just saying I mean, like all great artists, he needs to feel the crowd. He needs to feel like there is an exchange of energy going on between yeah. performer and audience Big in order to feed off that energy, you know? Yeah, no, it's he's he's putting it all out there. He's letting it all hang out in front of the fans down there in Texas. God bless him. Otherwise, without that, what is he? he just He's a guy in a ridiculous coat with note cards that he has made a lot of unnecessary notations and highlights on screaming into a microphone he needs that crowd 
He needs to know that there's he's reaching out, touching other humans. They're reaching back. Yeah, it's impressive. Well, Chad, I'm just saying, we talk sometimes about how if you want to like a fighter, you should learn as little as possible about them. Yeah, You Nate should Lambert. not follow them on social media. You should not learn about any of their political or social views. You should just enjoy them when they show up to fight because otherwise they might make it really hard for you. And I still think generally this is the best way to go about it. However, let's say you were given one Twitter follow that you could use on one MMA fighter. I'm just saying this week, Chad, it probably got to be Paulo Costa. <laughs> Just because the man is doing a little something different with his Twitter over there. And no, nothing captures this better than this tweet that he posted uh, yesterday, I believe. Just says, hey, notice my English is better now. I don't even remember when I didn't know how to write English perfectly. I'm fuck brilliant genius. Hands up emoji. <laughs> Thanks, God. <laughs> And you know what? Then what's even greater is like people are going to respond with a bunch of just like pictures and various meme stuff and be like, hey, Paulo, what about this? What about this? And then he's going to get in the replies and talk back to him. Yeah. Like the shit that other people are giving you on social media where they're just like, you know, maybe telling Andrew Tate to stay strong in a jail cell or something. Or maybe they're just posting about their lunch shit that they or commercials they saw that they're angry about. Things like that. No fun at all. Just no fucking fun at all. And then Paulo is going to roll up there with peak silly little guy energy, Chad. Paulo yeah. Costa got that SLGE. You know, no one can he say does. he doesn't. For a no. big ass dude, Paulo Costa is one silly little guy. I'm just saying. Just saying. All right, that's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. Remember, we're over at the Patreon page all week. Follow us over there, patreon.com slash co-main event. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You know what else Paulo Costa is going for him right now? He's the million dollar man, according to his manager. According to Paulo Costa's manager, he, she, she can't even fathom that there would be a higher paid middleweight in the history of the UFC. Given this new contract, Paulo Costa, she's, we're led to believe he's going to make a million bucks every time he fights, which I, in some ways, channel Cool Keith in saying, I don't believe you. <laughs> yeah, but does strain belief a little bit? Is she factoring in potential sales of secret juice? That no way to know. That the, the the sales of secret juice will just skyrocket every single time he fights. Are we including that in the, the bottom line? We gotta be. We gotta be including uh, merchandise and secret juice sales because otherwise, I don't know how we get there. I don't know how we get to, to the million dollars unless he's the one fighter where the UFC was like, you know what? We are going to give you what you asked for. We are going to give you a million bucks, Paulo. Welcome back. Welcome back to the org. Well, now I got to wonder what's, what's Paulo got going on as far as merch and could he use some help? <laughs> ah, we should check it out. <laughs> <laughs>